3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on stolen land from what was and always will be the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. Good morning, Patty, and welcome to the newest member of our Monday Brecky team, Claudia. Great to have you here, Claudia. Good morning, all. And do you want to start off maybe by telling our listeners a little about yourself? Okay, uh, well, I've got a bit of a varied background. Um, Before I moved into journalism, I worked in the legal profession. Um, I've also dabbled in a bit of creative writing, uh, worked in print journalism, and now audio. So really excited to be part of the show. And um, my general interest areas are social justice, Indigenous affairs, education, mental health and parenting. And I've got some special interests as well. Um, Recently I've been researching uh, some aspects of Victorian colonial history, which uh, is incredibly interesting. So we might hear a little bit about that at some point in one of our shows. And the other area is Japanese culture and society. I'm a bit of a Japanophile. Oh, good gonna, spread. Yeah, going to be so good uh, as <laughs> part of the show. And yeah, I'm excited for our first uh, show with you today, Claudia. And uh, Alice isn't with us today, but she won't be gone long. Uh, she's on a well-earned break and will be back with us in the new year. Um, this is our last live broadcast for the year, but we've got some summer programming planned for the couple of weeks are away and we'll be back on January 6th. And uh, what do we have planned for our last show today? A uh, busy show today, so we are going to get to speak to Alice at some point this morning, I think around 7.45, and she's going to lament the election results from the UK. Yes, we missed her too much to go completely without. Um, uh, at at 7.30, I'm going to speak to Trevor, uh, Trevor Peters, who is the acting CEO of Vacho, uh, discussing the inaugural meeting of the Assembly for Treaty. Which, which is a really interesting conversation. Um, who, who are you interviewing at, uh, at 8 o'clock? I've got Dr John Serry coming into the studio for a live interview. He's the psychiatrist member on the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal and he'll be talking to me today about the findings of the interim report of the Victorian Mental Health Royal Commission, which came out in November. Excellent. And what, what about at 8.15 or... Yes, I've got a couple of phone interviews today. At 8.15, I'm speaking to Sarah Slade, who is the Director of Experiences from the Victoria State Library. Um, She's going to be chatting about the reopening of the library last week, which will be nice. Good to have a good news story for a change. Um, And at 7.15, unfortunately, some less good news. I'll be speaking to Jason Leiter from ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation, about the latest report on uh, the Climate Emissions Index. Oh, all right then. Um, busy show, and we'd just like to thank Beyond Zero, the show before us, for for their um, excellent work. And now we're going to do the alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. 
So it's going to be a hot week in Melbourne this week, even though by Melbourne standards that's only like two out of three above 30 degree days. Yeah, is it going to stick around this time? Uh, not really. It's going to, so it's going to be 23 today, top of 23, Tuesday a top of 30, a whopping 39 on Wednesday before a late cool change, back down to 23 on Thursday before peaking at a top of 41 degrees on Friday. Ooh. So other parts of the state like Bendigo and Echuca are looking at tops of th- above 35 days every day, uh, uh, above 35 degrees every day this week. Now, for some of our listeners, this that forecast is great news, and they'll be looking to pack the beaches. But for a lot of others, these heat we- waves can be really tough. Anyone can fall ill from heat stroke, but older people and people with chronic health conditions are particularly susceptible. So remember this week to draw the blinds early in the morning on the hot days, and to open the house up when the cool change comes through, drink plenty of water, avoid too much direct sun, and look out for your neighbours, friends and family. Also, look out for your pets who can also struggle in the extreme weather. And take a check on the, uh, the bushfire situation too, depending on where you live, um, just checking what the conditions are and making preparations. Uh, don't leave it too late. Definitely. And what, uh, what alternative news did you have for us this week? Okay, well, I just had a few perspectives relating to the Climate Change Summit in Madrid, which officially wrapped up on Friday, but apparently um, it is still continuing because delegates have reached a stalemate. They're struggling to reach uh, agreement on some crucial measures. Uh, Australian Conservation Foundation has um, released a press statement providing the performance index results for Australia on climate change, and they're pretty disappointing, um, although I guess uh, we might not be surprised. Australia's dropped one place to a ranking of 56, and there is only 61 countries um, whose performance is uh, examined in the index. So, yeah, we're, we're right down the bottom, ahead of only Iran, South Korea, Chinese Taipei, Saudi Arabia and the USA. We actually scored zero out of 100 on climate policy. Yeah. Uh, We ranked low in two of the index's four categories, greenhouse emissions and renewables, and very low on energy use and climate policy. And according to the Climate and Energy Director at the Australia Institute, Australia is the only country to score a zero on climate policies. Um, Even China was higher than we were on policy. So, yeah, that's quite alarming. And, um, you know, as a consequence uh, 
of uh, those results and also um, Australia's voice at the summit, there was a fair bit of criticism that we're not really pulling our weight in the global community. Um, but we'll be hearing more about that when Ella has her interview later. Yeah, so yeah it's a good bit of background before I speak with Jason. Okay, and the other part of the news, um, there was obviously a lot of different groups protesting and uh, voicing their, um, their opinions at the, the summit, but uh, one that um, I thought was worth um, uh, isolating because uh, it was quite alarming was the group um, of Brazilian indigenous leaders who made a plea to the international community in Madrid to back their stance for the protection of indigenous territory against illegal deforestation and also for the protection of their people. And the reason I say this was uh, quite alarming was because there has been a, um, a series of uh, escalating violent attacks against Indigenous tribes uh, by illegal loggers in Brazil uh, over the last month. And in November, a prominent tribesman known as the Forest Guardian was actually killed in a confrontation with illegal loggers. And last week, during the Madrid Climate Summit, two Indigenous leaders were shot dead in a drive-by shooting in Brazil uh, in the same vicinity as the earlier killing. According to the advocacy group Amazon Watch, the men were returning home from a rights group meeting when they were shot from a moving car. So pretty serious stuff happening there. Um, and these incidents prom prompted Minga, the Indigenous Peoples um, Alternative to COP25, comprised of Indigenous leaders from Ecuador, Peru and Brazil, and another activist group called Extinction Rebellions Rebels Beyond Borders, which draws members from over 20 countries to block the road leading to the Madrid conference. And they also installed a yellow boat with people locked inside it in an act of solidarity. The boat had the words rebels beyond border on one side and climate justice now on the other. And it was presented in the six official languages of the United Nations. So they, they were calling on the delegates to listen to the indigenous leaders and act now to ensure climate justice um, and they appealed by saying we are asking the delegates to condemn the actions of the Brazilian state and others for their complicity in ecocide and the destruction of the Amazon rainforest for the murders of environmental defenders and for the cultural assimilation and genocide of Amazonia's indigenous people. We call upon every human with a conscience to denounce those who would destroy the Amazon and to join with us to economically disrupt governments and companies that are responsible and to demand an end to their ecocidal and genocidal activities. So powerful uh, stuff. And now I'm going to be speaking with Jason Lydiath from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Uh, good morning, Jason, and welcome to Monday Breakfast. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. I hear you've got a flight coming up next, so we appreciate you making the time. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> so um, the latest edition of the annual Climate Change Performance Index was released last week. 
Uh, the results are pretty damning. Australia's dropped one place to 56 and called, scored zero, sorry, out of 100 on climate policy. Uh, what are some of the main causes behind Australia's poor performance? Um, well, on the such before performance on climate policy, essentially we don't have an effective national policy to act on climate change. Um, the centrepiece, which is the Climate Solutions Fund, which used to be the Emissions Reduction Fund, has completely failed to deliver any emissions cuts. Um, there's no renewable policy beyond 2020. And then internationally, we're playing a, a very destructive role in in uh, talks to try and stabilise world emissions and cut, cut down. And um, we're, we're not even supporting poorer nations to deal with climate change. So, so right across the board, we're just not doing enough. Yeah, and I see the government still claiming that they're going to meet the 2030 emissions reduction target, but this seems to be more about negotiating a loophole than actually reducing our emissions. Um, can yeah, you, uh, sorry, can you explain what carryover uh, Kyoto units are and is Australia likely to succeed in this negotiation? Or? Um, so, so what ca- carryover credits are is that from, from the Kyoto talk, which was the last round of, of climate negotiations, um, countries had different targets and the, the idea of carryover credits is if, if you exceeded your commitments, then you, then you should be able to to carry them on. That that argument itself is not very good. Um, But the the fact is Australia only has carryover credits because we had such poor targets last time. So in the first, like it was divided into two halves. In the first half, we had an increase of 8% and in the second half, an increase of 0.5%. They were our targets. And we weren't that bad, um, but we we still increased our emissions. And so the idea of Having carryover credits is based on really poor performance is, is a really sketchy uh, position to take. So other countries, you know, had like minus 20% targets um, and they don't get carryover credits even though they performed a lot better than Australia. Um, in terms of whether we can get them through, um, that issue is being kicked down the road from the Madrid talks that, that wrapped up last night. Um, and so... You know, in the, the next round, that will be brought up again, and uh, it looks like Australia is going to continue to try and um, use that loophole. And do we know what the consequence would be if they're not able to secure that loophole? Well, what it would mean is that Australia's actual targets at the 2030 will be 14%. Um, for Australia to actually be serious about climate, we'd need to reduce our emissions by about 65% by 2030. So it's, it's just a, a massive cop-out. You know, when Australia's, you know, suffering terrible drought, it's on fire, to be, like, trying to weasel out of any kind of real action on climate change is, is terrible. Yeah, absolutely. And um, going back to the Climate Change Performance Index, I see Scott Morrison's rejected the report, saying he doesn't think it's credible. Uh, can you explain some of the methodology behind the report? Well, it's very credible. Like, the German Watch is an independent think tank, and they rate every country across, like, the same standards. Um, and it's all extremely transparent. And so they judge countries based on, on four broad criteria, which is climate policy, renewable energy, energy use, and emissions. And they're all put in, and then each of those is broke up into, into subsections. Um, and every country is, is, um, 
held to the same standard in a very transparent manner. So, so to say it's um, not credible is ridiculous. It's completely credible. And, and the proof is in the pudding in that, um, you know, as I outlined earlier, Australia just doesn't have a climate policy and we're not making any progress. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, um, the country is being ravaged by fires in large parts of it and we've had some of the biggest strikes in our history this year. Uh, what mm. do you think it will take to actually see some real action in terms of government policy on climate change? Well, unfortunately, this is just the beginning. These these climate disasters that we're seeing are going to continue to happen and, and we're seeing unprecedented concern in the community about these issues. People are really seeing what it means and... and you'll see greater and greater calls for action until eventually either politicians will have to change or we'll be changing our politicians. Yeah, absolutely. And um, can you tell us about some of the work the Australian Conservation Foundation is focusing on at the moment? Uh, definitely. Um, so because the, you know, we don't see there being great opportunity in getting the Morrison government to move in the near future, we're doing a lot of work trying to move big corporations to, to take action. And so what you're seeing globally is, is the world business community really taking action to try and move away from fossil fuels and embrace renewable energy. And so we're doing a lot of work to try and get the, the Business Council of Australia to be a champion on climate. At the moment, they're blocking all sorts of action and to get their membership to really step up. We're working to get banks to, to stop investing in fossil fuel projects. Um, we're also trying to develop stronger ties with unions and, and communities and other groups to, to get you know, broader sections of community working on climate change. And we're working in the community, um, building groups and working to, to get more people active in our kind of campaigns and to really empower people in the community to take action on climate change. Yeah, it can be really disheartening when you see the government's climate policy um, is so lacking. Um, what can we do as individuals? Um, um, the, the, the most powerful thing you can do is, is get involved in a group like the Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, there's a lot of other great environmental organisations out there. And, um, you know, when we work together, you know, we're a lot more powerful. Um, you know, we've, we've got the solutions and there's the, there's the support in the community out there. We just need to get more people on board to, to show, you know, the government that we really care and to convince other Australians to get on board. So, you know, whatever you're doing, just do a little bit more, unless you're doing too much, in, in which case take care of yourself. But, um, yeah, we just need people to get involved in organisations like ACF and, and, uh, and, re and raise their voice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for joining okay. us this morning, Jason, and safe flight. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Follow.
Better in Black by Thelma Plum. A bit of a language warning on that one. And now we're going to go to a, a pre-recorded interview with Trevor Pierce. So last Tuesday, the 10th of December, a, mem- a momentous event took place. The inaugural meeting of the First Peoples Assembly for Treaty between Aboriginal Community and Victorian Government. I spoke to Trevor Pierce, a Kamalaroi man and acting CEO of VACHO, the Victorian Aboriginal Controlled Community Health Organisation, about the meeting, and the first thing I asked him about was what that meeting meant in context of the long fight for treaty. 
I, I think it, it's a, it's of national significance. It's of Australia's one of the is the last colonial country. Uh, it's the last bastion of, of colonialism. Uh, Australia is, and, and it's entering into a a negotiation, a treaty, or uh, a, a, a recognition of the, the first peoples of the country, other than just you know lip service. It's about recognising that. It's, it's, it's a major watershed in the history of Australian society. It's such an important important step forward and while there, while there was a lot of celebration there were also some worries especially about the cultural safety of the setting um, Watharong Arenti and Gundijma man Jordan Edwards said in his maiden speech that he felt a lack of blackness in this process uh, that a meeting yeah. of this magnitude should be held out in the bush or on country um, could you tell us about the challenges the challenges of indigenous and non-indigenous organisations working together okay. We're, you know, holding the first, and and it's a good observation. It's not a, there's, there's no judgment or negativity to that. I, I believe it's a good observation. You know, we are meeting in the halls, in the buildings that enacted legislation that that destroyed our culture, or attempted to destroy our culture, um, and that that needs to be acknowledged. It's just part of the. The truth-telling that needs to happen in this country, I think, in order for us to actively move forward as a nation, we need to, you know, formally acknowledge that that hurt and that concern. Because um, we, certainly in, in the state of Victoria, you had elders such as William Barrick that would walk from Hillsville to Spring Street to ask a simple question. We just want somewhere to live. We just want to be who we are, mm. you know. And so that's um, it's 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 um, it's recognising that. And we've always been knocking on the doors, Aboriginal people, um, but we've also got to realise that that door's been shut on many occasions. That the the hall has had decisions made in them that has not been to our betterment. It has been to um, an architecture of, of destruction of cultural identity. Uh, so the young fellow has, has his right to say that. And um, we're saying that, well, then we can move along. We can't, we can't just brush it under the carpet like it didn't happen. Mm. I suppose a big part of this treaty process is going to be about talking towards a consensus. From your work yeah. in the community with Vacho, do you have a sense of what that consensus might look like? I had a meeting with one government minister the other day and they said, well, look, I, I need to take what you're saying, Trevor, and, and get that through Cabinet and Treasury. And I said, well, you know what, so do I. You know, it's not, it's not an easy process. You know, um, democracy or consensus is not an easy process. You're going to have differing points of view. You might have some... some um, Places where we, we, there will be places where we certainly will agree on some basic values. Um, and it's how we work through that as a community. We've got to work through that as ourselves as Aboriginal people, uh, as just as well as the rest of the Victorian Aboriginal, uh, Victorian community.
Uh, Trevor, you're acting CEO with Vacho. Could you tell us a little yeah. bit about what that is and what the work it does with the community is? So, we are the peak body for Aboriginal health and wellbeing in the state of Victoria. Our, we are a membership-based organisation. We have um, 30 members, um, 27 of which provide a comprehensive primary health care um, service to our community. Um, we have a long, those, those organisations have a long history and a tradition of providing a service to our community when it's just been too hard to get to mainstream services or to get through mainstream services. Um, so we are their, their advocate. We are their voice. We provide um, training and support in the day-to-day -day running of their organisation. Um, but, you know, we, we advocate uh, on behalf of our, our community organisations uh, to, to certainly state government and certainly federal government about the rights and the needs of Aboriginal people to living healthy and happy lives. And what do you think the treaty will mean in terms of health and wellbeing for Indigenous Victorians? The ability to embrace, not only embrace, but to live with self-determination and to exercise your rights to sovereignty. We've always been a sovereign people. We've never ceded our rights whatsoever. It's inseparable from, from someone's health and well-being. You know, to be a, a person that is, isn't hindered to do those things. Um, so treaty is, is going to, is playing a, is going to be playing a, I'm not saying it's going to be a new part of our life, um, but it certainly will go forward in enhancing our ability to, to exercise our rights uh, with a higher level of equality in this country. And for, for any of our listeners who are traditional owners and want to follow or get involved in the treaty process, how can they do that? They can do it through their, their elected representatives. So the Victorian community has, has elected about 30 people, um, which, in, you know, fundamentally includes the, the traditional owners, um, and they have an automatic place at, at the table. They, they were elected by the representatives of traditional owner groups that are, that are registered as traditional owner groups. Um, were elected by the traditional owner people themselves, as well as the um, other community members that were elected by Aboriginal people in the state of Victoria uh, via regions. Um, don't ask me what, the, what those regions are, but they're, you know, certainly metro and, and western and eastern and, and northern uh, regions. Uh, they are your elected representatives of, uh, for the Aboriginal community um, to, you know, to, to voice your opinions, to raise your concerns, um, it, it is interesting in the sense that um, it is not the election of, of certain community members is not just being for traditional owner groups to to, to to decide, but every Aboriginal person who's lived in Victoria for over a year or two years has a right to vote. Um, I am not a traditional owner from this country. 
my children are. I have a vested interest that my my my, my young fellows and my grandchildren to come um, will be part of the, the tapestry of, of Victoria. Um, uh, and it's, I'm, I'm afforded the the um, the privilege by the Victorian traditional owner groups to actually vote for who who sits alongside them as well, and that that's that's important um, that we we're, we're very inclusive of everyone here. Thanks so much to Trevor Pierce for coming on and telling us about uh, treaty and and. We are really looking forward to that process progressing uh, in the Parliament. Uh, treaty, it, it's time for the treaty now, I think. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. All right, next up we're going to be speaking with Alice about the UK election results. Uh, but first a song with says In My Business from Fulton Street. <laughs>
Last Thursday, the UK election saw governing Conservative Party achieve a majority in the House of Commons. We're going to cross now to our British correspondent, absentee Monday breakfast host Alice, about the result. Thanks for waking up early on your morning off, Alice. Oh, thanks for having me on, Guy. I like my new title, British Correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> Tables have turned this week. I was trying to find a pun for BBC, like our BBC <laughs> reporter. Um, uh, so thanks for uh, thanks for waking up so early. So Boris Johnson won a large majority. What does that really say about the political sentiment in the UK? I think it says um, that the UK are really, it, uh, in my own opinion, I think it, it says the UK saw this as another uh, Brexit, a vote on Brexit, rather than a general election. Um, I don't think that they wanted to waste any more time, and they, they obviously got behind what Boris Johnson was saying, which was, Brexit, let's get it done. That's what he led with, the whole campaign. Um, but, uh, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't said anything about Brexit. He's, he's actually seen as a... Um, a lever anyway, but because the Labour Party is Remain, he's having to kind of keep that on the down low. So he, he hasn't addressed it and he hasn't said any plans. He's been very quiet in the last three years and now he's come out on the campaign run and said, we're going to go for another vote. And the British public, they didn't want it. They just wanted it done and they didn't want to talk about anything else. And I think from what I've been hearing, in my opinion... Um, they a lot of politicians have said, no, this wasn't just about Brexit. This was about lots of different things. And then we've been speaking about lots of different things on our campaigns and we've been talking to people on the street. But I just can't see that it was about anything else. Well, yeah, it can be, it can be hard to um, stay politically involved when, there's, when there are so many important issues going on. And I guess you can round up people around the lowest common denominator. Uh, yeah. So I know, I know you voted, Alice. You put in yeah. a proxy vote. How, how many people turned out at the voting booths? So I think it was about 65% turnout, which is down on um, last year. But, yeah, I don't think that's a, that's a strong number, really. But um, that's what it was looking like. Do you know anything about the demographics of, like, what age groups are voting for who or anything about anything like that? Yeah, so the, the sort of under 30s, have they voted uh, Labour, and the yeah the older 
the older population were voting Conservative. That's what the, the split looks like. And we've seen that over the last... I, I think we see that in most, most elections, to be honest. Um, and, it, and then that kind of mirrors what we saw in the, in the Brexit vote as well. So that's not too surprising. Um, it, it's, it's a bit of a worry now. I think the, the UK as a whole doesn't really know where it's going to go. So Nicola Sturgeon, the leader of the SNP in Scotland, has said um, that they cannot be imprisoned in the UK any longer. So I think that we'll see another vote for Scotland to leave. And I think that um, this is probably the last time that we'll know of the UK as it is now. And I think we're going to, yeah, I, I think that's on the cards at the moment. Wow. Do you- uh, do you think the results would have been any different if voting was compulsory? I really don't know. I really don't know. The people that I know who either can't be bothered to vote or don't really or don't know anything about the election or don't bother reading in the manifesto usually vote conservative or usually vote um, along the lines of what their parents are voting or what somebody somebody close to them who strongly believes in something, they just vote like them. Which, in my own experience from back at home, because I'm from a um, East London, Essex way, which has is very... It's very it was Labour, now it's very Conservative. Labour did win back their seat there, but only by a tiny amount, which is unheard of. So it's still a Labour seat, but it's very conservative. And um, the people that I know back at home, I know a bunch of people who didn't vote and a bunch of people who don't care about the election and they vote conservative just because they can't be bothered to do anything else. And I find that people that, that do that are in such a privileged position because they don't have to care about politics that they don't make good decisions anyway. So, and they don't read up, they don't understand, and they don't care. So if, even if voting was compulsory, I can't imagine the vote ever being, ever even being a fair vote either. It's just another box that will be ticked by somebody who didn't read up what a manifesto was. I was, I was very encouraging people to vote, and I kept saying, I mean, it's always all over Facebook and Instagram, whatever, but I kept saying, remember to vote, remember to vote. Um, like, your voice is important. And by the end of it, I was so sick. I almost wanted to say on, on it, I've changed my mind. Don't vote. If you haven't read anything and you can't be bothered to even catch yourself up with politics, you don't deserve to vote. You don't deserve to even have a say in this because you all are voting conservative beyond, like, not even for your own, for your own good. Everybody who I know, I mean, and there's that, the idea of you vote in favour or you vote for the most vulnerable person you know and vote in their interest. All the vulnerable people I know back at home have voted Conservative, which directly goes against their interest. I just can't, I don't even know what to say with that. I don't know if compulsory voting would help at all with a result. So, yeah, when, when you do get that disillusionment with traditional government, you know, people tend, tend to lean towards activism. What, what is the state of activi- activism in England? So, there's been... I've seen there's been a lot of um, protests in the UK, and there's been some in Scotland as well, and that's coming from the socialist side. The socialist activists are coming out. I It hasn't made mainstream news, as far as I'm aware. I spoke to my parents, 
um, not long ago. Literally this morning, I was on the phone to them, and they haven't come across this. They haven't come across this video, so it hasn't made it into any mainstream field. It's not. It's not being reported on the news, and it's not made it onto any of the like the BBC or the news sites. But there is a video going around Facebook, obviously, um, which has this big socialist protest and the police are out and they're they're hitting them with their batons and um, they're pulling them to the ground. It's a very, very aggressive. It's very angry on both sides. And you do hear one... I think it's a police officer. I don't want to say it for certain, but somebody shouts out in the crowd and it's from the uh, an opposition, kind of, an opposing to the uh, to the crowd who are protesting, saying, you're not in sociology class anymore, and then aggressively pushing in. Um, so, yeah, there is, there is some... There is a lot of activism going on, and I think, I think it's going to be... It's going to continue. It's not going to. It's not going to go away quietly. Boris Johnson, in his speech, did did sort of say, "Let let's all now be uh, positive and whatever. Let's look forward." And and the people who didn't vote for me, I'm still gonna. I'm still going to be working in your interest. But people aren't interested in what he has to say. So, I can't imagine that the that it will be a quiet time in the UK at the moment, and I can't imagine it being quiet for the next couple of years either yeah that was that was going to be my last question for you uh what 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 do you see for the next few years in the, in the uk oh what do i see brexit going through i i but i don't see brexit getting done i don't think that brexit will be done for the next two years boris johnson hasn't proven that he can do anything so why on earth we would believe him that he is saying he's going to get brexit done i have no idea um, I think that I think that we will eventually leave. I don't think it's going to be a quick exit, and I don't think it's going to be a painless one either. I think that it will take another couple of years to really negotiate a deal. I think, yeah, that that's what's going to happen. And unless Labour can can find a leader that really resonates with. The old Labour population, unfortunately, it doesn't look like Labour will will be a strong opposition for the Tories anymore. The Tories have won by such a landslide, and I and I um, um, I lean heavy to the left, and I and I agree with all social like socialist policies. But Jeremy Corbyn cannot convince people to vote for him and to vote for that type of uh, leadership on that type of labour. So I think, unfortunately, someone's going to have to come in that is more to the centre in order to win back the vote. Um, they lost they lost places in the north that have never had a Conservative seat, and they are now voting Conservative, and that has never happened in the whole history of the Labour Party. And, and that those seats have never been conservative; they've always been Labour, and now they're not. So, and, and that was that was something that the Conservative Party, that was part of their targeting strategy. They targeted people in these positions because Corbyn um, is only really convincing people in the metropolitan cities to vote for him now. 
London is heavy Labour. Um, Manchester is Labour, I believe. I might not be correct in saying that, but it's more heavy. It's more heavy leaning to Labour than it is to Conservatives. And so we're seeing the cities remaining, um, keeping their votes. But he's lost, yeah, he's lost a lot of faith from people living out in the country and not in these metropolitan areas. So I don't, oh yeah, I don't think that, I don't think that he or his or his manifesto can survive. And yeah, I think that we're going to see a new Labour leader come in. They're going to centre it more to the right. Uh, yeah, so centre, uh, centre left, sorry, and hopefully that will take the, the leadership away from the Tories next year. Well, yeah, see, sorry, I'll just jump in with a question then. <laughs> As you say, uh, Labour needs a new kind of leader. Alice, what do you think that would look mm. like to um, have a strong candidate? I think, I think the, the, the leader that needs to um, to take position, I don't, I don't think that I've seen one that exists at the moment in in Labour um, in the cabinet. I think it needs to be somebody who has watched what the Tories have done and what these what these really right wing politicians are doing and how they're winning has watched, observed and can understand the game of chess they're playing. They need to just be strategic and they need to obviously align with the um, the views of Labour, not of the right, but they they need to just go about it in a, a different a different way. Um, and I learned from Corbyn's mistakes massively, just learn from them. Because he has made them, and I think if, if it shows more than anything as well, the the UK population wants a a um, a leader that they don't believe are keep, is keeping any secrets. So Boris Johnson is open. He's a showman. He says things that are stupid, and he he insults people all the time. But that seems to go down really well in the UK. Yeah, the simple why. message seems to win out there, that's doesn't really it? Really simple message, that no nonsense type of um, campaign, and and somebody with a not. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has a checkered past, or he has a past that people want to know about, but he's not speaking. So he's he has the the clouds of anti-Semitism and um, IRA, like pro IRA, behind him or on top of him, and he doesn't talk about it and. And people won't. People can't forget. People won't forget in the UK, the IRA bombings, and they need them to. They need that to be addressed. And Corbyn hasn't addressed what his what his links are to those um, to those campaigns or to those to those parties or whatever. And I, I mean, I know like Corbyn. Corbyn is anti-oppression in all forms, so he's pro-Palestine. And he was anti the Protestant government in Ireland, which was oppressing the Catholics, which is where the IRA kind of came up from. That that's the story there, I think. I'm I don't think there's anything more to it than that. And I think that every other every other thing is a Tory spin on why Corbyn is anti Semitic and why he's a, a terrorist sympathizer. But until he addresses them, until he's open and honest and can can spin the stories how how they need to be spun in order to get the public um, on side. He's never he's never he was never going to win, and and unfortunately that's just that's just the case. 
they the, the public need an, an open prime minister who they believe is one of their mates and they can go and have a pint with them down the pub and talk about the world and put the world to rights and that they've, they've got their back. That's, that's really what they want. Um, and unfortunately, Boris Johnson had all the charisma and he's the showman that he is and he really has, he has really won the support of the working class, which is a real shame because he certainly doesn't give a fly in to about them. Sorry, I was going to swear. <laughs> Well, yeah, we better, so, we better, yeah. we better uh, wrap it, wrap it up then. <laughs> Thank you so much yeah, for speaking no to us this morning, Alice, and thanks for getting up so early. Thanks. Thanks, yeah, Alice. Thank you guys. Can't Have wait to fun. see you again after the break. Yeah, see you in Jan. Bye. So that was Alice Golds, our uh, British correspondent, and he is Pussy Riot with Police State. So our studio guest this morning, Dr John Serry, a psychiatrist member on the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal. Welcome and thank you for coming into the studio to speak with us. Thanks, good to be here. 
John has 34 years experience in public and private psychiatry and clinical teaching at Melbourne and Monash universities and for the past 11 years has been a psychiatrist member on the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal. He's joining us today to talk about the final findings of the interim report of the Victorian Mental Health Royal Commission which came out in November. And a warning, this interview will discuss mental illness and includes references to suicide. If this might be distressing for you, you may wish to tune out for a little bit. Before we have our chat, John, I'd just like to play a short audio from the Royal Commission that they have up on their website just by way of introduction and then we'll get into our chat. Approximately one in five Victorians will experience a mental illness in any given year. Victoria's mental health system has failed to help those who are most in need of high quality treatment, care and support. The current system has been described as broken. So the Victorian government established a royal commission into Victoria's mental health system. So far there have been more than 8,200 contributions from the Victorian community. The interim report is now available to the public. John, a Royal Commission is the highest form of independent public inquiry a government can call for. Why, in your opinion, was it necessary? I think there was a recognition uh, at many levels, community, government, uh, and within the services themselves, that uh, there'd been a running down of mental health services in Victoria over the last decade in particular and that things were reaching a crisis and that uh, a major revamp of the situation was indicated and uh, that a Royal Commission would give the impetus and structure under which that could be undertaken and there was immediately a, uh, an agreement from government that they would institute the recommendations of that Royal Commission. In fact, they gave a blanket approval that they were comfortable with the people they were appointing to that position and that they were prepared to uh, enact the recommendations as soon as possible and, most importantly, fund them. Well, that's a, a bold statement by the government. Um, the Mental Health Act passed in 2014 was uh, brought in to protect consumer rights, and yet we find ourselves in this critical situation. How can people have confidence that the government will act on the findings of the Royal Commission when those final recommendations come out? I, I think we can have confidence that the uh, government will attempt to act. There has to be a, a revamp within the services so that they have the staffing, they have the allocation of resources to be able to put into implementation uh, on the ground the recommendations. So these are, we're looking at radical recommendations, major changes from where things have been in the future. And uh, the process of change in, in large organisations is, uh, is difficult and often takes time, and a culture has to adjust to the changes that are required. So the 2014 Act was a major improvement on the predecessors. It stressed the rights of consumers and their carers and family. It stressed a consultative approach in defining treatment. Um, 
but these things are, are difficult to put into practice when they're not the uh, modus operandi that exists and when the resources are so, so strapped that uh, introducing change is, is very difficult at the ground face-to-face level. Um, but the acknowledgement that the Act has made appropriate changes and that these have to be resourced so that they can be put into practice is an important part of this Royal Commission and where it's heading. The statistics are truly alarming when we look at the situation in Victoria. Um, One in two Victorians will experience mental illness over the course of their lifetime and an estimated 3.1% of people, so three in every hundred in Victoria, live with a severe mental illness such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And in 2018 there were 720 suicide deaths in Victoria which was more than three times the road toll, and over 7,000 admitted to hospital because of self-harm. And perhaps most startling um, is that suicide is now the leading cause of death for people between the ages of 15 and 44 in Australia. What are the biggest systemic problems the Royal Commission has identified so far? I think they've identified that there is... uh, um dissatisfaction in consumers and and their carers as to the service that they're receiving in terms of access, ready access to the service and the engagement of the services uh, with the participants uh, has received a lot of criticism in the presentations to the Royal Commission in their community consultations and that with the rundown of funding over the past 10 years uh, and the growth in demand uh, there's been a major mismatch and the services have been extremely stressed and they haven't had the backup support services to provide the sort of comprehensive uh, treatment plans that that patients need and uh, that's been a progressive uh, decrease Uh, Victoria was a leading funded service uh, in the past and uh, that's dramatically changed so that's now towards the bottom of the list. Um, But it's not just a question of funds, it's a question of recruiting staffing, it's getting the range of staff members so that patients can be treated well in the medical model but also extending their care outside the medical model to provide support in housing, support in uh, psychological approaches to treatment, uh, having staff who can spend the time to properly engage with the consumers and their support team, to work out agreed-to plans of management that, uh, that can have an effect. So the statistics you quoted are indicative of uh, the extent of the problem, not uncommon and not uh, unparalleled in other similar uh, communities. But uh, we're faced with with issues of trying to uh, contain self-harm, trying to contain suicidal behaviour, 
Uh, and at the same time, we've got a scourge of increased drug use, particularly ICE, uh, which has put enormous stress on the relationship between emergency services and very disturbed clientele and uh, changed attitudes towards clientele uh, who are seen now as dangerous and has had an effect, a significant effect on the morale of staff and their preparedness to engage uh, with people who they're frightened of. So there are a lot of issues that need, need attention. Uh, I'm calmed to a degree by the fact that the uh, commissioners cover a very wide range of experience, but they've come together with a very unified approach to what is required. They have not just tinkered around the edges, but they're looking at major structural change so that services are organised over the state and with a unified approach uh, to mental health care uh, that's been lacking because services have tended to be isolated and, as I said, again, poorly resourced. And although they're manfully trying to uh, deal with the situation, it's been overwhelming and, and that's led to staff stress, uh, which was raised in the community consultations a lot about how staff were stressed, how they found it difficult to remain in the front line under the circumstances that they were operating, how people were leaving the services, even people with major experience were wanting to move to administrative positions rather than face the distressing situations that they were unable to cope with. And what are some of the key recommendations, or can you give us a couple of examples of where the Royal Commission is indicating change might be uh, warranted and, and I think they're, they're talking about organisational change so that there is uh, more clear-cut policy which applies to all the services around the states, a removal of what they call silos of care where each individual service dictates its own policy and there isn't a, a common policy, where services provide across-the-board responses that are required in, in mental health care, uh, not just medication, not just medical, but also social assistance, uh, psychological assistance, proper uh, coordination of teams of care that can provide the multiple needs that come up in these situations and the flow-on of those problems to carers, to family, that uh, tend to uh, extend the impact of mental illness uh, within families and within carers so that uh, one has to take a broader view uh, of the clinical situation than simply addressing symptoms and trying to control them. So going beyond just the medical aspects and yes. building a, a social support yes. service. And, and, not, and not finding yourself in a very stressed service where you're trying to contain risk and risk becomes the paramount consideration rather than patient care and creative patient care and um, a recovery-based orientation. If you're just battling to contain risk, in people who are severely disturbed and often have multiple and enduring mental health problems, you never get to engage with the patient 
and start to map out a proper recovery plan that may make a major change over a lifetime because you're dealing with the crisis and the crisis is um, about blame. Services don't want to be blamed because they lose a patient. They don't want to be blamed because uh, a patient acts out in a destructive way in the community and that becomes the focus rather than being able to calmly engage and provide the services that are needed um, and uh, fulfil what the public expects of them. And does Victoria have any existing examples of this holistic model that you're describing? I've had some uh, involvement recently with an organisation called First Step which deals with people with enduring mental illness and associated illicit drug use. And it's a one-step shop. It has all of the personnel that might be required in um, dealing with a patient's problems in an ongoing fashion under one roof and liaising well with each other and uh, have a welcoming, friendly attitude to clients, uh, consumers and to their family and carers. And it's a model which could well be looked at as being uh, one that needs to be extended and, and used educationally and, and for other services. Now the report emphasises the inadequacy of existing mental health services in terms of availability, accessibility and efficacy, but it also identifies an important cultural dimension, that is the social stigma associated with mental illness, in fact, it goes so far as to shift some of the responsibility for the system's failure to all Victorians, stating that an inclusive, tolerant and supportive community plays a vital role in nurturing good mental health and well-being. What me measures is the Royal Commission likely to recommend to address this cultural aspect of mental health in Victoria and how effective do you think such measures can be? Some of the stigma has been dealt with by organisations in the community that uh, identify the extent of mental illness and uh, the fact that it extends in to all groups within the community, that it's not simply uh, uh, identified uh, within one group. So that's all positive. Uh, community attitudes need to change, uh, particularly in terms of risk tolerance and equating all uh, behaviour, behavioural episodes that reach the headlines um, as being related to mental illness and then people want to take a very risk-averse position which isn't healthy in terms of trying to deal with the mental health problems that uh, exist. They're more restrictive, controlling, lead to a, an extension of people being treated compulsorily, lead to uh, extensive use of restrictive practices, whether it's in the judicial system for people with mental illness or whether it's in the community. And we need to have a degree of community tolerance that there will still be people who self-harm or take their lives. There will still be people with mental illness who sometimes behave in an unacceptable social manner. But that can't be the primary focus if one wants to deal with stigma and one wants to be able to deliver the services that are needed. There has to be an understanding and an acceptance and engagement with people in the long term and providing them with some of the things that are going to stabilise their condition in addition to medication, like 
good housing, appropriate physical health care, appropriate negotiation and relationships with their care team over the long term, a continuity of care which is seriously lacking in the system at the moment, whereby people move from hospital to community to different teams to new people that they've got to deal with all the time, restart their whole bonding because the therapeutic relationship is essential in dealing with enduring illness, whether it's mental or physical, that there's a basis of trust between the carer, the consumer and the treating team. And that requires time and experience where people learn to trust and feel safe uh, with the care team and that the responses are going to be appropriate to their needs. And just to wrap up, because there are so many questions we could ask, um, this is a huge, uh, highly important and uh, complex area. But to finish with, uh, if you had the opportunity to speak personally to each person experiencing mental illness in Victoria and look them in the eye on a personal level, what would your message of support be? That there are good workers out there, that they've got to stand up for themselves and for their rights, that they need to have advocacy from family, friends, support people or from professional advocacy services so that their case can be clearly made and they're not a lone voice trying to speak in the wilderness uh, and that there are people who are prepared to listen and if the commission is successful and we improve our services there'll be more people out there to listen and hear your problem and make appropriate responses. Well, on that note, thank you for coming in to talk to us today. That was Dr John Serry, psychiatrist member of the Victorian Mental Health Tribunal, talking to us live in the studio at 3CR Melbourne. And if this interview raises issues for you, or if you or a loved one require support, call Lifeline on 131114, Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636, or contact betterhealth.vic.gov.au for mental health service information and for any emergency situations please dial triple zero
Springs Wine. Toss me my Prosecco. Out on the patio. This year's delicious Radical Radio Wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. And now we're joined by Sarah Slade from the Victoria State Library. Uh, she's the Director of Experiences there. Uh, good morning, Sarah, and welcome to Monday Bracky. Hi, Ella. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for joining us. And um, before we uh, talk libraries, can I just say uh, Director of Experiences has to be the best job title I've heard? It is one of the best jobs I've ever had, <laughs> so, and it's a great title. It's as good as it sounds then. <laughs> yeah, it is. All right. So um, the Victoria State Library has reopened last week after a nearly five-year redevelopment. Uh, can you tell us about the redesign and give us an idea of what visitors can expect? Yeah, certainly. So um, we reopened on the 5th of December, so just over a week ago, and that was after nearly five years of planning, design and construction. And we've basically given back a reimagined state library to the people of Victoria. So we're one of uh, the busiest libraries in the world and uh, our redevelopment, Vision 2020, has created 40% more space and 70% more seating along with better facilities so Victorians can continue to use and love our library. And the main thing we wanted to do with the redevelopment was to make sure that we were continuing to evolve to address the changing needs of our visitors and our ever, uh, our very diverse community. So we wanted to zone the library to better cater for different needs and include a lot more digital technology throughout the building. Yeah, it's such a beautiful old building and the redesign is a really lovely blend of old and new, I think. Um, I imagine this was a conscious decision on the part of the architects? Yeah, very much. So um, the architect's intent was to let the heritage spaces really stand out in their raw beauty, but also it was it's a quite a complex site. Everyone who's been here will remember that. Uh, it's actually 23 different buildings and they're all of different ages, and so one of the in, intents of the architects was to make sure that you could see through to other spaces, whatever space you were using, and I think they've been really successful in that. Um, the Ian Potter Queen's Hall is really the jewel in the library's crown and that's been closed for 16 years so it's lovely to be able to open it up again to the public. It's the library's original reading room and it really is now one of the most beautiful spaces in Melbourne if not the whole of Australia. It's been um, restored to reveal its original beauty and that includes, it used to have uh, skylights that flooded the whole space with natural light and they've been closed up for decades. And so a lot of the project was um, very complicated work on the roof of the Ian Potter Queen's Hall to protect the original um, skylights, but also let natural light in, which we've now done. And also to do what we're sort of referring to as an archaeological reveal. So we've um, identified parts of the original um, paint scheme and we've um, 
done a paint reveal of those of some of those areas where that's been damaged over the decades. We haven't tried to make it look like it's new. So, so visitors can see exactly what it would have looked like when it was originally done. And I think that's been incredibly successful. Wow. Did you know that was there when you um, first started building and redeveloping? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, we did. So we have a conservation management plan for the whole site. And that's one of the things that we had to be really careful of. So we did a lot of work. Um, the architect... Um, Architectus and Schmidt-Hammer-Larsen. It was a partnership between local and international architects. They did a lot of work on that. Um, and also we were in consultation with Heritage Victoria and we had guidance from Andronas Conservation Architecture as well. So it was really was um, a lot of expertise, both locally and internationally, that led us to this fabulous um, end result. Great. And you spoke a little about creating spaces uh, that meet the needs of lots of groups from communities, and libraries are about so much more than just books. Um, what's the cultural and social importance of an institution like the State Library? So I think that um, if we go back to what our founders actually believed in when the library started, and it's one of Australia's oldest um, public libraries, um, they believed that free access to knowledge was critical for the development of a civil and prosperous community. And that sort of underpins what we still stand by today. And it embodies everything we do on a daily basis and the services that we give to the public. But it also was a guiding principle in terms of what um, we wanted to do with Vision 2020. So from the moment we opened the doors in 1856, we've welcomed everyone to come inside and to experience our library and be inspired. And in fact, all you need is a curious mind. Um, so we, what we wanted to do with the redevelopment was to make sure that people's different needs weren't in conflict with each other. So we have dedicated spaces, for example, for children and family. We have new spaces um, that were, are about offering business advice and small business um, advice. We have uh, podcasting facilities. We have green rooms, we have um, uh, access to our physical collections, but also spaces where you can make a lot of noise, work together and access all of our digital facilities as well. Wow, amazing. And just really quickly before we wrap up, um, the State Library schedule for the summer is looking packed with exhibitions, talks, tours and more. Uh, what's your top pick for the summer program? So I'm slightly biased because I'm a cricket fan. In our um, new Victoria Gallery, which is one of our new international standard uh, exhibition spaces, we have an exhibition called Velvet Iron Ashes. Um, and it's really interesting because what we've tried to do is create a different way of displaying collection items than people would normally expect in an exhibition. So we have uh, a series of stories and the objects within them are connected in really surprising and unexpected ways. So people come in and discover those connections themselves, much like coming in and, and researching something at the library. And, uh, and the cricket is one of the sub-themes um, within the exhibition and particularly around the Ashes Urn, which is, we have at State Library Victoria, and it's on display until the 23rd of February. We also have a, a great um, series of um, programs in our Pauline Gandell Children's Quarter, which uh, start to roll out from January. And in our Start Space, our um, Centre for Entrepreneurship, which um, start to roll out from February. So we have a range of programs and activities for everybody. Excellent. We'll have to get there over the summer and uh, check it out. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us this morning, Sarah.
Thanks, Ella. It's a pleasure. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. Just the stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. You've been listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. As our last live broadcast for a while, there's going to be some summer programming over the holidays uh, to keep you busy. And listen on for Women on the Line. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.